on this episode of Skeptico. Who really knows E.T.? She passionate Jane. This is Black Knife. Not a good thing. Chuck on him. Last of his people. There's no reasoning with them. They're all gonna die anyway. What's left of the Chiricahuas? And what are they trying to tell us? How about these cases of angels and such, uh, where it seems to have a positive spin? And he says, yeah, but they always end up sour in the end. And not just of Native American culture, but I mean, it's they're actually shamanic cultures going way back all over the world that have stories that relate to these kind of elements. We got a little bit of Harrison Ford getting dressed down by an Indian chief in that first clip from Cowboys and Aliens. And the second one is from today's guest, Prent Rains, who's been looking into UFOs and ETs longer than just about anyone I've ever run across. Hope you like the interview. Stick around. Welcome to Skeptico, where we explore controversial science and spirituality with leading researchers, thinkers, and their critics. I'm your host, Alex Sikaris, and today we welcome Brent Rains to Skeptico. If you remember, a couple episodes back, I had a chance to interview again Dr. Bob Davis. Love the guy, a lot of respect for him. He came on to talk about his new film on consciousness. Afterwards, he sends me an email and he says, hey, you know, you seem to be interested in all this crossover, paranormal, ET, UFO stuff. Have you ever heard of Brent Rains? You really need to talk to this guy, friend of mine. Wow. Wow, was he ever right? I tell you, you know, I, I started digging into uh, Brent's stuff and I just realized how absolutely ignorant I am of these fields that I like to talk about. I mean, this guy, amazing, amazing body of work. I don't even know how you talk about this body of work. 40, 40 plus years, full spectrum researcher, author, excellent writer, but researcher. He knows everyone. He's talked to everyone. He's interviewed everyone. He's written about everything. It's just amazing. You know, I pulled up on the screen, apmagazine.info, go check that out. There's a search, uh, uh, the, the tagline here, an alternative way to explore and explain the mysteries of our world. That's pretty general. <laughs> Published, this is the part I want to draw your attention to. Published since 1985, online since 2001. And if you really go into his work, he was publishing long before he put out this magazine. So this is going to be a super great treat for me to tap into this guy's knowledge and try and pin things down a lot of things i'm interested in and the only problem is i have 100 questions each one could probably take about an hour to explore but i guess we ought to just get right to it brent thanks for coming on thanks so much for joining me well thanks alex uh for inviting me and uh wow what a what an introduction i hope i can live up to that and a lot of times I'll start out with a, an interview with someone and I'll have a list of things that I think we can, well, I've got a list right here to the side. Uh, and, and uh, we might get to two of them, you know, <laughs> it's, it, it is so many areas that you can uh, go into because so many things are, uh, 
uh, this is a lot deeper than than a lot of even the ufologists themselves uh, understand or or want to believe. You know, so it's uh, I've been at this actually a little over fifty five and a half years. I started out at age fourteen, and I uh, great great origin story. You, know, you have to tell the origin story and swapping newsletters with John Keel. I mean. If that doesn't blow your way right off the bat, then. Well, yeah, when I started out, it was, uh, you know, I'd read Flying Saucer's Serious Business by Frank Edwards. And that was a very, you know, hard line, nuts and bolts ET type uh, presentation of the evidence. And that was where he was coming from. And, and so that was, uh, like many people, that's where I started out at. But uh, as I, you know, as a young man, I got really excited about all this. I was obsessed. And uh, I still have my bouts of obsession. <laughs> and uh, I was really intrigued by it all. And uh, I started to represent, I was actually on the board of directors for a, a magazine out of uh, St. Petersburg, Florida called Saucer Scoop, which was very popular at the time. Even Brad Steiger was its public relations director. And he and the editor, Joan Whitnor, used to uh, write articles and some books uh, together at that time. And uh, I noticed this uh, journalist from New York City named John Keel was submitting articles. And they were very interesting. And there were things that uh, were way beyond the, the things that I had read in Frank Edwards' book. I mean, these were paranormal things, contactee, a lot of very high, strange cases, as we call them now. And I was uh, quite intrigued. So actually, we initiated correspondence beginning in October 1969. You're, uh, again, always, folks, you're 14 years old. I mean, you initiated con, <laughs> initiated correspondence is not. I have four kids; none of mine at 14 were initiating correspondence with with the likes of John Keel or anyone else who was serious. I mean, John Keel's super smart, super. This is not like UFO people who don't know who are just so ignorant. And there's so many people who are ignorant of this whole field. They just think the guy's a kook. The, no, the guy's like a genius writer and thinker and all the rest of this stuff. And you're 14 years old and you're going to start up a correspondence with him. Great, great for you. Well, well, by that time I was about, you know, 16, but you know, I, uh, I started corresponding. I even had a, a newsletter at the time of my own, a mimeograph newsletter called scientific sauceritis review. And I had, you know, he had his newsletter called Anomaly, so we were actually exchanging newsletters. In fact, he even quoted sometimes out of some of my newsletters. And if you read his first book that came out in 1970, Strange Creatures in Time and Space, he lists all these uh, Bigfoot cases and strange happenings state by state by state. And the main cases actually came uh, out of one of my newsletters. <laughs> Yeah. So anyway, you know, it was really quite a, a paradigm shift for me to to become familiar with John Keel and correspond with him. And I even asked him, you know, how can I investigate such phenomena myself? Because I was interested in doing what he did, going out on the road and uh, going interviewing people. And I, you know, wanted to know what kind of preparations that I I might need to follow. And he suggested a uh, a book by a man named Terrell who studied apparitions and wrote a book on apparitional phenomena. He felt a lot of your euphonauts, UFO beings, even the craft were often very apparition-like, uh, what Carl Jung, the late great Swiss psychologist, called psychoid. And uh, they're somewhere, they're, they're like, they seem physical one moment, and then they're like paraphysical, or boom, they just disappear. 
uh, ghost-like. And in fact, he even stated in that uh, book, Strange Creatures, that, uh, uh, you know, aliens, ghosts, what's the difference? Take your pick, you know. And so I always found that idea interesting. He even claimed that he felt, you know, ufology should have been a branch of parapsychology. Really, it's, it's a shame that so many people get locked into one discipline. You know, it's either you're a parapsychologist or you're a ghost hunter, you're a, you're a Bigfoot hunter or some sort of cryptid hunter, or you're, uh, you're a ufologist. And, you know, they, they keep themselves separate from the other fields when really, uh, as Keel and even Jacques Vili and, and others pointed out, there's uh, evidence of a lot of these things being crossover, like interconnected. And uh, if we could just kind of put everybody's head together and and uh, compare notes and, you know, like we're doing now or, you know. See, uh, you, you would think so, but I, I don't, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. My experience is that that's not really the way it works it's almost like uh this this paradigm stuff when we talk about paradigm as if you choose your paradigm and i don't know that that's always the case i think it does seem to me that some people the paradigm chooses them again i can't get over the fact that brent you're this 16 year old kid i mean there, there's two ways to look at it one you are predisposed to be this broad thinker i mean just to be able to be in this world of nuts and bolts ufos and talking to a lot of people who are knowledgeable on that and then immediately be able to reach out into this other world of oh maybe there's this crossover i mean that's a different kind of person that can go there some people they just they just can't go there the other part of that that is the extended consciousness part and i was going to save this question towards the end but who cares Right. Do you ever think that maybe you were put in a place to be that person? I mean, it is a rather strange set of circumstances that brought you to together with all these people. Are you just playing out some scripted role to to be this conduit for all this stuff? Well, I, I've I've certainly seen not only myself but others where you become to realize that. Uh, Instead of just being the guy who interviews experiences that you suddenly, it turns reflective, as Keel had said, and you begin to have experience. or so you notice unusual synchronicities uh, that, that occur and, and, and keep occurring sometimes. Sometimes it's, it's uh, based on some case you're working on or some particular experiencer, and it's it kind of like like Keel had described. Uh, he felt sometimes the experiencer was undergoing experiences that were actually demonstrated uh, demonstrations for him to take notice of. And you know, I've I've kind of noticed that sort of thing myself. That the someone would, I would, you know, well, let me give a for instance. Uh, this was not too too long ago. I was working with uh, someone who's. Uh, whose mother had had a dramatic experience out in Texas back in, I think, about 1957. And this really, really uh, changed this woman's world. She, she had uh, seen, uh, it was late at night, her husband was at work, she was home alone. Usually, she before going to bed, she'll read a book, you know, and relax. Uh, this night, a flying saucer showed up outside, and then this small being... Uh, appears 
And this was not something that uh, she ever imagined could enter her world. You know, she went and talked to a, uh, I think, a local minister. And what he said did not help her whatsoever. <laughs> and, uh, and after the experience, she also developed at the psychic level. And she had two daughters who I've been in touch with, who uh, now live fairly close by in the Nashville area. And uh, they have had some UFO experiences themselves. And uh, as their mother did, also developed at the psychic level. And so I had had an experience back in around October 1975, where I was, this is kind of a long story, but I was, but I was, uh, I had already been across country, spent a lot of my summer, most of my summer of 1975, traveling around from Maine to Florida and, you know, through Pennsylvania, Ohio, out into Indiana, down through Florida, I mean, uh, down to Florida through Tennessee and Alabama, meeting different researchers, experiencers, and uh, doing the the thing that, you know, uh, John Keel had done, going through different states, interviewing people. And uh, it was, uh, there was a lot of the, the things that he had, you know, had discovered. It didn't turn reflective right off, but uh, when I returned to Maine afterwards, I'm in my parents' home, and uh, it's late at night, it's a little after 11. And I just uh, was crawling into bed, and uh, suddenly, it's like I'm walking uh, across the floor toward the hallway door. And in, uh, I get about halfway, and uh, I stop, and there's like something behind me that's holding me back. And, uh, you know, uh, ordinarily, uh, I heard someone use the expression once, translogic, I would be turning around and saying, who's holding me back? I didn't. I continued to look straight ahead towards uh, the hallway door, which was open, and the light was on there. And uh, <clears throat> my, my father was making, you know, late night pit stop to the bathroom. And all of a sudden, I'm seeing all of these luminous uh, glowing balls of light, tiny little balls, translucent, pulsating, white-colored swarming around looked like there were hundreds of them just swarming around and going down towards the floor and there they seemed to be clustering together and forming like the shape of a four-legged animal and then the next thing i know i'm back in bed laying on my back staring at the ceiling which usually when i crawl into bed i am i am right there uh, under the covers i'm laying on my stomach or uh, on my side, you know, I, I don't just lay there looking up at the ceiling. You know? And uh, so anyway, I, I give that that description so that I can now tell you how a few years ago I decided to uh, uh, try to do a kind of a meditation like Carl Jung had, had talked about a, a, a technique that could be used where you try to revisit some old memory or something. and. Uh, so I was I some read some books that he you know read and where comments were made and did the best I could to to try to to do this. And anyway, I didn't know what I was fishing for exactly. Uh, but it returned me to uh to that bedroom and 
I found myself in that bed kind of hiding by it from people who were like walking around the bed. You know, who are these people? And then suddenly, about the place where I suddenly found myself stopped, my mother, who's been deceased for years, appeared to me and told me everything was all right. We hugged. And, uh, and believe me, in, in, in real life, she often, you know, I uh, was rather upset with my obsessive interest in UFOs. You know, this is nonsense. You should move on. <laughs> but in this dream, it was okay. Well, this one particular experience, experiencer up in Nashville, uh, this lady had written to me, says, I had a strange dream about you. And uh, in it, there was you and a group of people uh, who were with you. And my mother, who passed away years ago, who was the contactee, and there seemed to be like some karmic connection, something between the two of you. But she said that everything was going to be all right, uh, and that you're, you know, you've been concerned about your wife, who, you know, I had been thinking about, you know, my concern had, was there about her uh, COP condition, COPD. And anyway, uh, it was just. Uh, also coincidental, because it turned out when she looked it up in her diary, that dream was the night before my dream. And then afterwards, a little later, there was uh, another woman I had interviewed in the past who had a, con a number of contact experiences and ghost experiences, the whole paranormal nine yards. And she uh, sent me a message one day saying, uh, Brent, I just had the strangest experience. I got sunburned from a dream. And I said, okay, let's talk tonight on the phone. And uh, so I called her up. And she's telling me about this very strange dream where she's among a group of people in this room with all these glass windows. And her mother, who had been dead for years, suddenly comes to her, comforts her, and they put their arms around each other. And there's this bright burst of light. All the other people that were around her are like laying or crouched down. And it's like the... The bright light coming into the room was like it felt like the end of the world or something, but she was with her mother and everything was going to be okay. And anyway, with that first lady who's, you know, uh, that dream I told you about, we've had a number of synchronistic moments since then, you know. And uh, that's just an example of a number of the things that, you know, have transpired, you know. Uh, it just kind of makes you wonder you know, what's what's going on here uh, well yeah it don't don't downplay it like that i i i get what you mean you know what it reminded me of when you were telling the story brent it reminded me of the john kill story in your book and john kill was pretty amazing guy you know and the fact that you had mm -hmm. such a long-term relationship with him and close relationship with him like you said from the beginning he recognized you recognized that you had some talent maybe recognized in the grander scheme, you had some role to play in all this. So I think it's very fitting that you wrote this book on him. But I love the story from the book where Keel, as you said, is really one of the very first people to kind of just have a, a, not just I want to say an intuition, but it's more than an intuition. Again, it's this thing of he's just able to look at the data in a more objective way and say this stuff fits together in some way I don't totally understand but I got to start I can't silo it like <laughs> like we're saying today so many people still want to silo it and say oh you know I'm in my little thing here and never the two shall meet and I don't want to bury the lead on on the story that you tell in the book 
But John Keel writes an article for True Magazine, and you can tell the story, and, and they call him over and they say, hey, John, come here, can you help us out? Uh, you got some mail here. And he goes in the back room, and there's like six big bales of mail. And what I take from that story is for the, the, the like you are, let me again digress, and but you'll pull all these pieces together for me, I know. You are, uh, uh, because you've done this level of research, and again, you're driving around all over the country, you're talking to people, you are somehow able to pull, if anyone reads your interviews, and I read them from a couple of your different books, they're amazing, I can't even get through all this stuff, but I mean, you get people to open up and tell you a lot of stuff. You're so deep into it now that you have all these connections. John Keel was able to elicit that kind of reaction to people in his writing because no one else would talk about this stuff. So when he comes out and starts talking about abductions, starts talking about strange paranormal dreams, ghosts, and all this stuff, he is flooded with mail and correspondence because there's this huge part of our population. Again, this is the living history stuff. If you're talking about 70s, if you're talking about 80s even, or 60s, you know, there is, there's no outlet for these people. They are living, and I'm sure you have tons of stories about that, of people, you just told the story, you know, someone who's troubled their whole life from 1957 and has no outlet for it, goes to their local, you know, and he's like, you know, what, so, there is that element to this that you represent in terms of what you've done and in your book about john keel you you are telling how there this is a validation for so many people that they need because it's a real experience i know i hit on a million different items there but pull that together and, and tell us about that story and tell us about it i'm sure you've encountered that too well i know that back Prior to, well, see, when Keel came into the field in 1966, he thought uh, he was thinking along the ET lines, but before long, he got out in the field and uh, traveled through about 20 different states and uh, soon realized, oh, this is, uh, there's a lot of things that are here that the mainstream of ufology isn't, isn't paying attention to. And, I, and it, it helped him to get away from, he called a lot of the books on the subject cult literature. You know, they were, they were misleading you from, the the big picture and 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 what he uh you know that that incident with the the uh the editor calling him to his office uh he had written a magazine article about uh it was titled something like uh uh, uh something like who cares about the ufos who's piloting the things and so he wrote about some cases you know where people had seen the occupants or the beings and uh he was uh in this flood of mail he got, he, he got letters from people who were what he called silent contactees. They'd had the experiences, but they never had anybody they could open up to. And they also had missing time. And at the time in background, you know, the early, the, the, the 1960s, 1967, 1968, 1969, when he was making all these contacts, there was uh, really uh, hardly anyone in the mainstream ufology so-called respected ufology and of course he was a journalist and i think some of the people were upset that he got into the things he did uh because they expected better i mean he was corresponding with uh, uh coral lorenzen of the aerial phenomena research organization a uh, very big civilian group at the time and and they they were certainly strongly uh advocating you know an et presence and all 
But Keel thought maybe this was some sort of Earth-based phenomena that was related to all kinds of other phenomena that gone on for ages and ages, from Marian apparitions, uh, you know, some incredible stories there, and uh, poltergeist manifestations he found frequently after someone had a close encounter with a UFO, there would be a sudden development of psychic uh, uh, phenomena in their life, uh, poltergeist manifestations, noisy ghost. Uh, they may develop some sort of psychic abilities themselves, uh, telepathy, maybe like Uri Geller, psychokinesis or something. And, uh, you know, I'm going through this stuff and my, my mind is like, okay, I, I was meaning to say something else and I'm off on this, but, you know, I'll just go with the flow. But, you know, the thing with Keel, when he brought it out in, you know, when he did in the 1960s, late 1960s, 1970, and in the early 70s, he generated some interest. But uh, it, it took really about 1987 for the mainstream ufology to really pay attention to the, the abduction phenomena, the missing time that Keel tried to introduce. It was Bud Hopkins and Whitley Strieber when their books came out, you know, and then foundations were created, uh, support groups. It was the Communion Foundation, the Intruders Foundation, and uh, they were inundated letters after their books came out. I think each claimed about 4,000 letters. And uh, But it was Keel who actually first tried to blaze that trail and uh, kind of got shut down by a lot of... <laughs> A lot of the mainstreamers. What uh, is what is your speculation about that? So, again, this is that lived history thing that I think you can do better than almost anybody because you lived through all that because you've been in the field for a long time and highly connected and deeply in the field. So, uh, Bud Hopkins and Whitley Strieber, 1987, come out of this, and I remember, not mm -hmm. that I was really tuned into it, but they were like laying the groundwork for this mass uh recovered memory thing right they go look we just do the numbers which people have done the numbers since and it does come up with pretty extraordinary numbers no matter what percentage of people you think have had contact experience the numbers range in the one percent to two or three percent range and that's a lot of people and they were like preparing that once this comes out, this and to a certain extent that did happen. Communion with that famous ET picture and people, the reports of people walking by the bookstore and falling to their knees and crying and having these recovered memory kind of things. But you got to wonder, in you lived through the misinformation, disinformation thing to now where we don't even acknowledge that that whole period existed, where they were, they were working so hard to keep a lid on it, and now they're working so hard to push it out, and they're saying, no, no, it really is true. And people are like, nah, we heard it's all. So I don't want to get too far afield, though, because the point is, I don't think they wanted Whitley to come out in 1987. I don't think they wanted Bud Hopkins to come out, just like they didn't want John Mack to come out. It's just these guys were just confident enough in themselves. Bud Hopkins is an artist. I can do anything. And, you know, John Mack is, I'm Harvard. I'm Pulitzer Prize. Of course, just come out with the truth. That's my speculation. How do, how do you think that message was managed, mismanaged, surprise 
Because as you're pointing out, Keel didn't have a big coming out party. They kept him under wraps. Yeah. Okay. When I, you know, one of the things I noticed was the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena in Washington, D.C., a civilian group that uh, uh, the, you know, retired Major Donald Kehoe had uh, organized in 1956. It was a major civilian group. And uh, he wanted to generate a uh, make ufology respectable. He wrote a true magazine article on UFOs, wrote a book, well, more than one book eventually, but he generated a lot of public interest. And uh, he was onto the ET bandwagon uh, and he was fighting the Air Force. He felt the Air Force was covering it all up. And he wanted a congressional he hearing where the evidence could be presented uh, competently to the American people and open this thing wide open, find out what the government really knew. And ultimately, in the process, one of the things he began doing was fighting the reports of anyone who claimed they had a contact. It was okay if a, uh, if a craft was seen by a credible observer, but when it landed and someone got out, uh, especially if they got out and said, uh, you know, gave some sort of positive message, it sounded too, too, uh, too out there. APRO was really more open to it. They were uh, they allowed uh, the beings to come out if they acted like scientists. But if they started preaching about brotherly love and uh, we should uh, discontinue using the atomic bombs, we're, we're endangering the planet and some sort of you know thing, it sounded too fictional to them. So for a long time, they wanted to suppress a lot of these reports of human entity encounters. And they were doing really, even though like NICAP wanted to fight the Air Force, they were often using the Air Force's, you know, witness, you know, observation forms to fill out. And they were practicing pretty much the same process the Air Force was. So they had a lot of respect for the way the Air Force did it. And they didn't uh, also, like the Air Force, they considered uh, reports of entities as lunatic fringe, you know, uh, uh, flying saucer missionaries, different titles that were given to, to those, those people. And uh, I think... Uh, Rosemary Guiley, who wrote the foreword to my book on Keel, was a good friend of Keel's, and she said she always suspected that Keel, uh, well, she knew that he was aware that a lot of the experiences were somehow wired differently, and she felt that Keel was too. And it was interesting to find out that in Keel's early life, like age seven, he claimed that he had seen a with his uh, stepfather and his mother riding out of the country somewhere in New York State had seen this big barn-sized spherical object rise up from a hilltop. At first, they thought a barn was on fire until it cleared the trees, and then they could see it was this bright, glowing sphere. And then it just took off at unbelievable speed off in the distance and out of sight. And also, not far from, I think, his grandparents' farm, there was, uh, when he was age 10, uh, people were reporting a gorilla in the area and guys are, you know, the farmers are getting their shotguns going up, trying to track it down. And as often happens with these uh, Bigfoot events, it just suddenly stops as mysteriously as it began. And so that gave him an insight into that. It was a poltergeist phenomena he experienced as a young man. And uh, at age 19, he had an experience where his, there was illumination in his room and he suddenly had the answer to everything, like the answers to the everything you want to know was just downloaded in his brain. It was a strange glow. And 
And uh, then the next morning, it was like he could only remember fragments of it, you know. Uh, so I think that those early experiences uh, gave him some uh, some insight once he made that connection, you know, because he went from himself thinking E.T. in 66 and then going around the country and, and hearing all these stories about these other phenomena that were happening to the UFO experiences. And I think that helped him to connect the dots. It's all about connecting the dots as you go along. So, Brent, what do you think about how they've managed the narrative? You kind of gave part of the story, part of the history, but then the story changes and there's a complete lockdown, complete denial. Then there's the whole disinformation, misinformation. There's the pretty aggressively going after people who report anything, will kill you, you will kill your family kind of stuff. And then 2017, there's disclosure. Here's a 10-year-old video. And I interviewed Kevin Day, who was on board the ship. It was in his email the next day, but suddenly eight years later, it's New York Times headline news. What's your general feeling about how they've handled this narrative? What's behind, what is their agenda in trying to manage this? And what have you seen? What, what has it been like for you to live through that and live through, you know, they poisoned the well of the ufo community did you get caught up in that at all there's a million questions there well i i really thought back around the mid 70s that you know i was i was seeing a lot of alternative um activity going on and 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 these things that keel addressed others were taken more and more seriously and at one point in an interview with tim beckley tim beckley congratulated john keel for his victory in I think largely writing in a magazine that had an international audience out of England called Flying Sauce Review for making a lot of other researchers aware of the, the paranormal psychic uh, aspect of ufology, which was an accomplishment in itself. And he was, you know, didn't take a, a victory lap. He said, no, actually, it's kind of a hollow victory. It's, it's like opening Pandora's box. He said, we've only made, you know, by doing this, the situation we discover is only much more complicated than we originally believed. So, I mean, it's, you know, and it seemed like back in the 70s, uh, I really thought, okay, you got a parapsychologist named D. Scott Rogo, who is, uh, you know, writing in the, you know, writing about all the things going on in ufology. He, he uh, co-wrote a book with uh, Ann Truffle out in California on some abduction cases out, out in that state that uh, several women, and he was putting a paranormal, uh, you know, parapsychological spin on some of that. And he actually wrote, uh, helped, uh, turned out it was his distant cousin, Jeffrey Mishlove uh, of New Thinking Aloud, who wrote the book, The PK Man, a contactee named Ted Owens, who, uh, who was a quite an interesting character and could uh, actually, uh, you know, uh, between uh, the two of them, you know, Jeffrey and, and, and uh, Jeffrey Mishlove and, and D Scott Rubler, they, they pinned down a lot of, uh, a lot of testimonials from, I think around a hundred people who said they had uh, actually witnessed UFOs. They'd actually uh, seen uh, Owens make incredible predictions that come true. even. Jeff Mishlove has, Mishlove has his own stories on that score. And even seen him go out and uh, say, I'm going to make a lightning bolt during a storm, strike the strike that building over there. And and that was the only lightning bolt I saw was the one that struck the building. 
And he did that more than once. So, I mean, it's, uh, I really thought, okay, you know, uh, there's an awakening going on. And then people started pushing Roswell to an area 51. And it's like, whoa, 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 where are we going now? <laughs> yeah. And, and so I, yeah, I see some, some, some people now who are, it seems quite promising. They're looking at this whole para UFO realm, but I don't know. I don't know that it's going to be enough to break through the, the, the barrier that currently exists. Well, that, that's what I'm asking, though. You're not answering. What is the barrier? What is the barrier? I mean, shit, we are going through right now. We have to deal with Tom DeLong and uh, Lou Elizondo. I mean, I always I hammer on this and people don't care, but Lou Elizondo, Richard Doty 2.0. You know, behind the curtain, strawberry ice cream. Lou Elizondo, <laughs> uh, right? Uh, counterintelligence? That's the guy who's going to tell us the truth. Him and Peter Lavenda. Peter Lavenda. <laughs> Peter Lavenda, very kind of interesting past, very spook yeah. related. So they're going to come out and they're going to say, hey, we got to find, we got to get to the bottom of this. Let's go talk to the CIA. I mean, the mm -hmm. whole thing, if you step back, like you're laughing, well, come on, why are we laughing? And why isn't, why are most people not laughing? Most people are like, really? What did, what did Lou say on his Twitter today? I mean, you lived through all this bullshit over and over again. Yeah, you can't, uh, you can't just put all your eggs into one basket. And uh, probably one of the only, one of the, biggest things to me was was like strangers strangers the pentagon with all the you know the bigelow uh site there the skinwalker ranch and the fact that what they were describing you know and and, and telling about and, and presumably very credible observers attesting to the fact they've seen and interacted with some sort of para parapsychic uh, entities or whatever paranormal events going on and ufo and then it turns reflective and they're having poltergeist phenomena and apparitions at their homes with their families, their wives and kids are suddenly involved, you know, back in Virginia or wherever they live. And uh, I thought, yeah, they call it the hitchhiker effect, but really that's what Keel called the reflective phenomena. And uh, they're confirming that. And now other people, I'm not sure where they're headed with this, but uh, I know there's a lot of people who are trying to figure out the propulsion system. And I, I think it's a little... You know, that's still way on out there. But, you know, I think everybody is entitled and needs to look whatever aspect they need to. But let's not all jump on the same bandwagon and just say, oh, this is it, you know, and this well, is where. Yeah, they're, they're, I, I hear you there, but I keep kind of I'm going to I'm going to press you a little bit on this because like the Skinwalker thing is super interesting. Somebody go read. Go read Brent's book. Let me pull up the book, this one that I read. Go read this one on the edge of reality, Dreamweavers, the mastering of space and time. All sorts of accounts of Dreamweavers or, or skinwalkers, right? I mean, you, you've had, mm -hmm. we haven't even talked about this because there's so much more to talk about, but you've been very, very interested in the shamanic, uh, Native American traditions, and they're telling these stories. And it's not even telling the stories, their lived experience with these encounters and how they're even interwoven in their direct experience. Like, no, my cousin went out and was missing for four days and came back and said this kind of thing. Or we all as a community saw, you know, these 
four eagles and then they turned into spaceships and stuff and then there was this shape-shifting beast that you know you have to be very fearful of because they have stolen children before and so again folks like i said at the beginning this is going to sound scattered but go look into brent stuff there's a million a million different things to to pull on here so i don't know if we want to pivot over there but uh, we can't before i nail you down on the what's going on what's going on with this so-called disclosure they are again trying to control the narrative in an obvious way you know and it's like you know you know grant cameron and you know those guys and you know can't can't grant cameron this is another topic to talk about those guys have gone overboard on the consciousness thing. And I wonder what your conversations are when you talk about the good ET, bad ET, the demonic, the evil, however you do that. I'm not a religious person, but why are we leaving that out of the equation? I mean, the Space Brothers thing plays great to a certain extent, but it don't play great when they're raping your wife. You know, I mean, that's that. Well, uh, you informed consent at a different level in a previous life. I don't, shit, that doesn't that doesn't fly for most people. So what is going on? What is going on with disclosure? What? Why would we trust these people? And the reason I brought up Grant Cameron, of course, is because he references the Wilbert Smith memo from back in the fifties when they go, "Hey, this is the most you know." From the the Canadians come down and write a memo back that gets released in the Freedom of Information. They say, "I mean, you know all this stuff." They say this is the highest priority thing in the united states higher than the hydrogen bomb and by the way there is this mental phenomenon aspect that they're very interested in hello john keel hello john mack they saw it from the beginning they've investigated from the beginning why do we take this spoon feeding that they try and give us of showing a video here or that what what agenda do they have our united states government has in this latest round of disclosure. Brent, I'm nailing you down. What is their agenda? Oh, uh, well, <laughs> uh, well, I don't have a deep secure, you know, levels, top secret security level with the government, <laughs> but I, <laughs> I will say, you know, uh, it, it is a whole different position, you know, where we're hearing these days than back in the early days when it was this no threat to national security. Uh, and, uh, there's no evidence, no sufficient evidence to prove this is anything extraterrestrial. And now they're not saying it's extraterrestrial, but they they leave the door open slightly, you know, that maybe it is their their concern being that it is a threat to national security because there are craft and things in our skies we don't identify and they're doing things that seem extraordinary now i just but, but uh, hold on hold on don't you think they're saying et they might not be using et but they're saying et all over the place and they're saying skinwalker ranch too they're pushing that narrative out at the same time they want you to let you know that all this stuff you've been talking about really is connected but the you know they just released the dumped all the and you know all this stuff but they released a bunch of documents on the genetic manipulation stuff, pregnancy stuff, and stuff like that. So anyone who's really paying attention, yeah, they're not just trying to do the, oh, there's things in the sky thing. Yeah, there's not, uh, I mean, we, you know, I was just talking with with Greg Little, you know, I've been working with him since 85 with with uh, my magazine and, uh, and many different projects. And he just came out with a book by uh, Andrew Collins called Origins of the Gods, which is a, 
a real uh, great book. And if you can interview either of those two or both uh, talking about that, uh, they look at the shamans, they look at the modern UFO phenomenon, uh, all of this quite deeply. Uh, and they're also both, uh, like myself, had their own past interactions uh, with Kiel and all Kielian students, I guess you could say. <laughs> and and so a lot of their uh, their research investigations have uh, always had Kiel, Kiel in the back of their mind, too. But uh, Greg had said that, you know, this whole thing with, uh, and it's it's in a recent interview that's on my, my site for the September issue of APMagazine.info. I was interviewing Greg. Uh, about uh, a variety of different phenomena, and he brought up on, on you know about these Navy sightings, and a lot of what they're seeing is in the infrared range, and uh, he's thinking that maybe this was a black ops project, and that uh, they were able to you know like taking a flashlight, but able to maneuver something this way and that way, making it appear like what you're seeing in the infrared is actually uh, going at this tremendous speed when actually it's it's uh, uh, perhaps some sort of a plasma type thing or something, and it's not really, you know. So See, I, don't I don't know, know about I, I don't know about that, but I interviewed uh, Kevin Day. I just mentioned a minute ago, and he well, was the. Uh, do you know who Kevin Day is? Was he one of the uh, the pilots, or he, he was actually the the radar operator? So he was oh, directing okay. the pilots, and his story is really kind of interesting in a couple of respects because number one. I like the term you used. I can't remember it, but I always think of Ray Hernandez in the thing where his wife is having this traumatic quasi-spiritual experience with an ET, and he walks down the stairs, and he gets halfway downstairs. He goes, oh, there's nothing going on here. I should go up and go back to bed, which you are walking down the hallway, and you're seeing these lights. You're like, oh, nothing going on here. or go back to bed. Well, in, in the, the case of Kevin Day, he is the guy in charge. He is top gun guy running all the radar and really running all the planes that go up. They're on this operation for a week. These objects are trailing them for a week, he later remembers. And I asked him, I said, Kevin, don't you think it's curious that you didn't go to your CO before that? And there's a long pause. He goes, yeah, that is kind of strange. I mean, it's beyond strange. It's screen memory strange. You are running this major drill out the ocean with all these ships, and you see these things, and they're keeping right alongside you for days, you know, and you don't do anything. And then the other part of it that I thought is interesting, and maybe you remember this from the case or not, but there's this mental phenomenon thing. Like they have this meeting point in the sky mm -hmm. that they'll yeah. go, right? And mm -hmm. they go there, and there's E.T., Waiting so on them, yeah. <laughs> waiting on them. Yeah. So there's something going on at this other realm. And then the final thing about Kevin Day's story is he has the Valet Davis effect. He is devastated after this in a way that he doesn't even know. He comes back to San Diego and he winds up going to the VA and says, I don't know what this is, a post-traumatic stress, but it doesn't feel like that. Finally, somebody comes along and goes, dude, you saw a UFO. That's what it is. And you have all these, you know, strange mm -hmm. kind of so no no the tic tac thing and again you know the other thing came day like i told you it's in his it's in his security email on board the ship the day after all the videos so 
I don't know. I mean, what intrigues me about it, and the reason I keep pressing it, is these are the issues we're dealing with today. You know, uh, one world government. You know, don't you don't really have to worry about the United States anymore, or we the people, or any of that shit. This is the Great Reset. Global government really does make the most sense. It particularly makes sense from an ET perspective. From an ET perspective, it's the only way to go. You know, you don't need 147 little tribes out there with run around with hatchets. It doesn't make any sense. It's the same thing with the global warming nonsense. Yes, the climate, I get it, all that stuff. But the only thing you hear about global warming is it's global. You gotta give up all your rights and we're gonna tra track your carbon and get in line. All, that seems to be the agenda. And then the transhuman agenda, you know, take the jab, do what we say, we're gonna, to me, they've kind of, that's the beauty of what they did with the pandemic is if there were any doubts that we had, they kind of laid out the plan and this is the plan. And to me, I just see direct parallels to disclosure again, cause it's global. It's like, as soon as they advance that agenda, there's only one solution for it. It's not a US solution. It's not a, Russia solution. It's a global solution. Is that resonating with you or you just don't like to talk about that stuff? Well, I, I, uh, yeah, I, I, you know, it's like Star Trek, uh, uh, Federation of planets, you know, and, and that's why that, that, I think that show back in the sixties had so much appeal to us because we're hopeful that that's where we're headed, you know, but here we are all these years later thinking that we're, uh, we're becoming a more advanced society. You know, we've had all these good ideas that have uh, sprung up from things like that. And then, and then we see uh, how people are, you know, are behaving, <laughs> misbehaving. And, and, you know, other countries not, uh, not wanting to get on board and, and uh, uh, be a, be a part of uh, what really needs to be done and bring all the tribes together. So I, I see you over there thinking. <laughs> well, you're, you're not, you're, you're not giving me much. You're, 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 which I get, you know, I mean, anything you say is going to be, well, number one, it's going to piss people off on one side or other. And number two, mm -hmm. it's who knows, but man, I think we gotta, we gotta settle up and, and ride here and figure out, you know, Lots of shit is happening, really. Well, how are you processing mm -hmm. the demonic uh, part of this? Uh, again, are you a religious guy or are you? Uh, I'm not, but I think the spirituality is fundamental to this. I look at people drawing parallels with uh, near-death experience and other transformative spiritual experiences, and I'm like, I'm all for looking at the parallels. The next mm -hmm. level is to look at the difference. Is there differences? Is there a moral imperative? Is there God? Is there right and wrong? because the message that's being consistently, consistently fed into the culture is a, a Crowleyan, do what thou wilt. There really is no right or wrong. It's a moral construct. It's just, you know, transhumanism, no big deal. I don't know. I don't, how are you on all that? Yeah, we wrestle with a lot of these. You know, that's what's so interesting really about these experiences is they, uh, they it's not just the simplified version of ufology that I, I initially thought it was. And uh, I did at one time, 
decide to uh, join a, a group up in Maine back in uh, May of 1975, accepted Christ into my life. Uh, and uh, I'm sure it looks like I've backslidden since then. But uh, I was, you know, Keel was actually a, a lifelong atheist, although said, said sometimes he he told some that he thought maybe every once in a while he'd be an agnostic, you know, just in case you might be a little wrong. But he uh, he considered himself, instead of a ufologist, more of a demonologist because he was often trying to help contactees and experiences who thought, felt that they were being manipulated and used by a, a devious intelligence uh, uh, that wasn't uh, doing things for their best interest. And I asked him one time, and we were talking on the phone, I said, what about, uh, and this is in my book, uh, how about these cases of uh, angels and such, uh, where it seems to have a positive spin? And he says, yeah, but they always end up sour in the end, he said, you know, in his view. So he didn't really see uh, a lot of a lot of hope there. But, you know, my wife is pot Native American. We used to have a sweat lodge in our backyard. Uh, we've, uh, in fact, when we first met, I... Drove her up to Pennsylvania. We met a Sequana Hawk medicine man who claimed he was having uh, ET encounters. In fact, they were part of his tribe's folklore, the Udushkwa, he called them. They were very tall beings. And they. his wife even uh, drew out on an envelope a uh, picture of the craft that landed behind their house, she said. And this was like back in 1961. And they came in. They had to bend over because, you know, they were so tall that they were going to bump their heads on the door. and. Uh, he said then they they spoke to him and he told me uh you know a lot of his his stories and so i've been very interested since then and and uh, what native americans have to say and the shamans medicine men or whatever and not just of native american culture but i mean it's there are actually shamanic cultures going way back all over the world that have stories that relate to these kind of uh, elements uh, contact with the sky beings, uh, beings who came down from the heavens and communicated with uh, the people, maybe prophets, shamans, and instructed them on how to uh, try to develop a better a better life. Uh, taught them things about uh, harvesting plants, uh, how to uh, build houses or pyramids or whatever, and you know, trying to take all that into consideration along with people who claim to be channelers and mediums and what they get. Uh, and then there's, you know, of course, there's the trickster element, you know, and uh, there's a being that, uh, as Greg would, Greg Little would tell you, uh, that uh, like in the, in the beginning of a vision quest or when someone's first encountering, say, a UFO being or a spirit or whatever it may be, there's a trickster element where it seems like maybe it's testing you to, determine what your intentions are, whether you're worthy of uh, true information or if you're just an egotistical person uh, who has ulterior motives that aren't really exactly spiritual. So there's the test phase. And uh, he always felt that uh, Betty Anderson Luca was uh, perhaps a good contactee case example of, of that. In the beginning, her experiences were very frightening to her. And then over time, uh, they seemed to strengthen her Christian beliefs, and she had a level of acceptance. So he felt that as you, uh, if you could navigate around the trickster, which he said that uh, the late Carl Jung said that shamans were, that was their 
their deal. They always tried to navigate around the trickster who could either direct them to higher levels of truth and understanding or could, uh, you know, ensnare them in, you know, their own delusions and leave them where they found them. You know, I, I got really interested in the near-death experience stuff and researching that again, mm. because I, I got interested in just the, the Christian stuff too, because the Christian stuff, I don't know how you pack that back in, but to me, there's a history there that you got to deal with. There's dogma that you have to deal with that doesn't square with history. You know, the historical Jesus, like I am totally uh, mm -hmm. accepting of anyone who has a Christ consciousness experience. I'm not accepting of it because I'm a nice guy, although I am a nice guy. I'm accepting of it because the evidence is pretty substantial that people have had these Christ consciousness experiences, that they're transformative in ways that we can kind of measure from a social science standpoint. Their life changes. Everyone around them says their life changed and it stays for a long time. That is real. The, the history mm -hmm. of uh, Jesus just doesn't hold up. The books don't hold up. There's all sorts of Roman manipulation that's uh, pretty clear when you look at it and uh, writing writing a book with some other people on that right now it's just it's just clear it's just clear that it was a psyop social engineering program that they did all the time why not why better than using sticks and stones and swords to you know mm -hmm. subjugate a population give them give them the religion and this and that doesn't mean that christ but that none of that doesn't mean that christ consciousness isn't real that whatever whatever that means right so i'm interviewing this guy david ditchfield terrific guy has written a book saw jesus in his near-death experience many many people have seen have had a direct experience with jesus it always kind of confuses me a little bit when i talk to these people i go you experience christ conscious and they go no no it was jesus like okay well you know jesus is a historical figure that lived two thousand years ago so are you talking to me about like time slip or something like that? They go, no, it was. A, so you're talking about this being and this extended consciousness that's Jesus. Okay, I'm okay with that. But let's be clear, that is Christ consciousness. Or you put another term on it. The point of the story is I go to David. I said, so David, Jesus countered it, had a mediumistic experience. They saw Jesus too. I said, David, you know, I've talked to a lot of near-death experiencers that have had multiple near-death experiences, and some of them initially thought it was Jesus and then later felt that maybe there was something more. And he paused for a minute. He goes, there might be something more. So this has been one of my areas of interest because, like, the only reason I do this freaking show <laughs> because I've done it for a long time, like you. I'm not a long, I don't have the history that you do, but I wanna know how to live my life better. I wanna know who I am, what I'm here, why I'm here, and what decisions I should make, you know? And fundamental to that is, is there a moral imperative? Is there a hierarchy to this consciousness? Is there good and evil? And I think there is, and I get pissed off when people do the Crowley, Alistair Crowley, and will do what thou wilt, because really there's no, I don't see the evidence for that. I see the evidence for hierarchy of consciousness, moral imperative, there is God, there is good. I see it all over the place, but I don't see it in, in a strict reading of Christianity. 
to me. You want to talk about trickster? It's like it's a history of <laughs> tricksterism. So this is the stuff I think that we have to that we have to sort out. And uh, ET only confuses the issue. Uh, it, even the shamanic experiences that you're talking about. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, the, the 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 starting point for the for the shamanic thing is great. You got all this info. And they still came in and trampled over your culture and just destroyed you, you know, it just destroyed you. Why, why, why no heads up on that? And that's the question we could ask about God all the time. You know, why does God seem different at times when he should be joining on the side of the good? And those are questions we'll never answer. But I, I still feel compelled to try and poke at those questions and nudge closer about is there good or evil? Is there God? Is is how is that working in this data we're collecting? There's physics and consciousness. It's it's the two areas that really we need really serious focus and attention. The scientists, the academics, that are jumping on this. But yet, you know, what is the X factor that unites them? Like synchronicity, non-causal. Uh, coincidences there's something there that seems to connect but yet it's it's you know we don't really know what it is yet uh, we haven't yet identified what this is we know that when a, a person has an experience uh, because like near-death experiences carlos osis and one of his colleagues wrote a book about uh, cases of near-death experiences in india and then compared them to near-death experiences in the united states and there were variances you know they would they would be seeing Buddha or something, we'd see Christ. And yet there were similarities and there were slight differences affected by culture. A person has a UFO contact experience or, an in, you know, like all these other experiences. And uh, it seems to be like, it seems like an intelligence interacting, but also it affects our, you know, it conforms to our expectations and things. And that's how it gets, gets, bias and, and embedded in our, our thoughts and our lives. And uh, so I think it could be an actual interactive intelligence, and then it waits to see how we're going to react, and yet it, it can read us. And so then it, uh, you know, it goes from there, and we don't really know sometimes how much is it and how much is us. Like that, uh, like a gentleman you just talked about, like, you know, you had to point it out to him. Do you really think that is Christ or a representation of Christ's consciousness, something else higher? Or or is it part of your own unconscious that's, you know, your expectations of what you've, you've been told was was the real deal here? What uh, you're, you're, you were told or you're conditioned through your culture or spiritual background is the answer or, you know. Uh, because a lot of people enter these experiences unexpectedly and their brain is like trying desperately, I'm sure, to put this in some kind of a, a context or, or framework. And uh, so I find myself trying to connect the dots, but I also at the same time, I have a hes hesitancy to just jump in and say, aha, it's this or it's that, you know with certainty. And uh, Keel was certainly a good, I realized, a, a good springboard to use to actually delve into things and interview people who had known him and actually take my own 
involvement too to to say yes these are really valid areas to look into and there's still so much that we don't know and it would be it's like a spiritual journey you're going through it i'm going through it lots of people are going through it and and sometimes it's like beating our head into a wall trying to uh address the contradictions and the yeah i just read some discussions people had on, on facebook about uh, the Bible and different things it says that contradict one another. It says it's a book of contradictions. It's very, very difficult to, you know. And then it was a, a Native American who uh, was telling my wife and I one time, says, uh, Peter, Paul, and Mary, you know, in the Bible, those are really good uh, Catholic names. <laughs> said, you know, uh, why didn't they have names more like, you know, you expect from that part of the world? And there's a lot of... <laughs> A lot of good questions that sometimes it takes someone from another culture to really framework correctly where you say, oh, well, yeah, I guess, you know. But when you grow up with it, sometimes you're just sort of, you're too relaxed in your acceptance of, of different things. And then something like, I know Keel always wrote in different plot parts, you know, say you're out one day strolling around your, your yard and suddenly this flying saucer. It looks like a flying saucer lands, and this uh, silver-suited humanoid being walks up to you and tells you from Venus. At that point, are you going to say, you're not real, you know? <laughs> you're going to become one of those space-age messiahs, you know? You're going to be you're going to be the local nut in town. <laughs> and uh, how, how do you how do you process that, you know? So Bravo, you know, like you, like you said, Brent, you know, you're on the spiritual journey. Yeah, and I can't really advise, you know, I think the, you know, and I'm, I'm I still find it's, it's hard for me to advise anyone else exactly, you know, and it, uh, a real clear path to take because I think you have to, it's got to be a, a kind of a path where you have to allow yourself to kind of, mix things up and ask the questions like you've been asking and the questions, you know, that a lot of people just get on one path and they stick there. And uh, I, I thank my lucky stars, I guess, that early on, I, as a young man in my teens, I was able to interact with John Keel and, and that uh, took me in uh, a whole different set of directions. And, you know, Keel, uh, Toward the end, Keel wrote me and said, uh, after my my book, uh, my first book, Visitors from Hidden Realms, uh, came out in 2004, I sent him a copy of my book, and he said that essentially I had followed a path that he had, but he said, in the end, we don't know. We really don't know anymore. I said, churches are, are not really, our religions have failed us and all, and uh, we don't have any definite solid answers. Uh, he said the best that I could offer in my writings was speculation and you know uh it was kind of a you know a heartfelt and and somewhat uh depressing letter i felt that he that he had written you know but uh well that's an atheist you know <laughs> I mean, that's there's no hope yeah and i i certainly you know i i always tell people i want to be a little more upbeat positive than keel was even though i i highly respected you know the the direction that he took. And I understand the complications and contradictions that, uh, that befall us all in trying to 
tie this up into a neat little package. And they're really in their minds. A lot of people think they've got that package, but in my mind, it's, it's very complex. And, uh, a lot of it's very tricker, tricker, <laughs> trickster like. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll head towards wrapping it up, but I can't resist, you know, one of my fav fame favorite points on that is, uh, Albert Camus, who, uh, philosopher, uh, it, 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 this is kind of be interpreted a lot of different ways, but there's only one philosophical question, suicide. And that's what I always lay out to atheists. It's like, really? You think life is meaningless? You think you're a biologic robot in a meaningless universe? No, you don't. You got up, you took your head off the pillow today. You made that decision. So don't tell me this agnostic bullshit. You're not agnostic. You're here. You took another breath. You took another step. You're a believer just like me. You just want to play hide and seek with, well, I'm not really sure. I don't really know kind of stuff. I like the believers, whether they're Christians or Cherokee or whatever the hell. What else can you be other than a believer? It's just moving from one belief to another and being fluid about it. Mm -hmm. Long as they're genuine and authentic and, you know, not just trying to make money and be a televangelist or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those, yeah. those are the ones you got to look out for. Hey, so uh, you're obviously not going to stop with this, but let me pull it up here. Where are you going with this work? And again, there's so much here. I, I do. I, I have to come back and bring back folks to, you could go read all his books, but go to apmagazine.info and just type something in that search bar. Anything you want related to this topic, and you're going to be amazed like I was. It's like that was driving me nuts when I was preparing for this interview. Every time I did, I had three or four other, you know, complete articles I had to read and a million questions to ask. Go there, and that will lead you towards these remarkable books. We talked a lot about the John Keel book. Amazing. Yeah, and three of those books are mine. The others are by uh, Greg Little, who uh, has been working with me um, as co-editor, publisher, columnist for since 1985, when I first started this magazine as Parayufology Forum, which was a print magazine. Then we actually, uh, Greg was co-editing with me, uh, up to about you know 2000, we did have a print magazine, which uh, about 58 pages, and it was quite spectacular. Uh, we had subscribers all over the world. We had uh, magazine distributors from coast to coast. Uh, but you know everybody's gone to the internet, book sales on set. You can you go to a, ma a bookstore now, Barnes and Nobles, or or you know Books a Million, and find a UFO book. It's very hard <laughs> or a magazine. Uh, now, now it's like it's gone to, uh, you know, I Ching books of witchcraft or uh, maybe you want to buy a crystal <laughs> or something. Uh, it's 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 uh, it used to be able to go and, and there'd be all these magazines, UFO Universe or uh, Saga's UFO Report and so on. And and uh, Fate Magazine, it's it's still published, but it's very, very, I guess you just have to subscribe to it. I never see it on a book stand anymore. And it's a whole whole new world <laughs> it is and it's pluses and minuses and the medium is the massage and the medium is the message to uh quote uh marshall McLuhan. and there 
definitely was. I'm old enough to remember there was something about getting that magazine. And I didn't read a lot of UFO magazines, but sitting down and knowing that you were going to have that page turning experience and going through and just sitting in a comfortable place, all that stuff. We have lost that, but we've gained some stuff too. You know, we can search now and that search bar, that search bar is, is what we've gained. So, you know, there's the, there's the trade-off. So what's caught your interest lately? Where do you want to go? Uh, where do we expect you expect to see you go in the next year or two? Mm, uh, I am thinking about writing another Keel book, uh, describing maybe a little, starting out with a little more of where I, where I started from as a teenager and bringing that forward, you know, some road trips I took and different things and uh, what happened and, how I became as deluded as I am today, you know, <laughs> and uh, and then present cases that uh, uh, additional cases that I did in, in the Keel book that uh, you know they just don't fit the the mainstream nuts and bolts ET theme, but they're out there and they seem to cross over to all these other unusual phenomena. They seem to be a part of it. It's just our mindset has tried to pigeonhole them where we want it. If it's not what we want to hear we shelve it away or put it in the circular file and forget about it. Uh, but uh, I want to be one of those people who keeps putting it out there under people's noses so they can't uh, avoid it. Now we got, and, and, and one of the good things about uh, uh, today, these times is like you and I being able to sit here and uh, converse face to face, even though it's through a, a digital system, uh, it's more personal and, you know, Back in the day, you had to drive miles to get to see and talk with someone or attend a conference, you know. And, uh, and uh, of course, we still fortunately have a few conferences. Uh, they're coming back after, you know, a couple of years of uh, interruption with COVID. But uh, anyway, uh, even during that, we still had this, and this is great. And uh, thank you for having me, me uh, on to talk with you. Sorry I couldn't provide maybe the answers and insights that you were trying to get right. I don't know. <laughs> no, you did. You, you, you tipped your hand right there at the end, which is, mm-hmm. I get it. You let your writing do the talking. You just put it out there. Here's another case. And I love your interviews. They're incredibly in depth and you elicit so much information in a very non-judgmental way. And you just put it out there. So that's what you're about. Now I get it. It just took me an hour and a half. You just <laughs> put it out there, let everyone kind of have at it, but it's out there. You got to deal with it. You know, it's there. I, I, I can't, uh, I can't say what it's all about. I really don't know. I'm still after 55 and a little over half, you know, years, I'm still struggling. It's still a challenge, but I know there's something to it. And I hadn't even talked about, I guess you read it, but you know, I've, after Keel's passing, I thought, what a loss and so on. And there was a contact experiencer I met named Brett Oldham uh, a little over 10 years ago now. And and uh, he introduced me to this EVP method called EVP method, electronic voice phenomena called a ghost box, which was based on the early Frank's box, if anyone familiar with it. And I mean... We were getting John Keel after he had died coming. I, from, I, I read a, I read a little bit about the story. Uh, you and your son and your wife, right, in the spirit box. And pl- please go oh, back my, to John. 
please go back to John Keel. Oh, is your daughter? I'm sorry. Please go back to John Keel, right? Yeah. I mean, okay. I was, you know, I had tried EVP things in, in the past and didn't have much, any success really. I was, I was more the debunker than anything. But uh, suddenly we did these sessions with him and he was, he was a person who from age five had seen a ghost, age five had seen a, uh, a gray, which he first thought was a demon and had other contact experiences and psychic experience. was a ghost hunter. That's how I met him first. Didn't even tell me in the beginning that he was also an abductee. And, but he was, he had this method. Uh, he seemed to uh, be able to work with the, uh, the ghost box, which is a digital radio from Radio Shack. You can get one and just adjust it where it goes on continuous scan. And the idea is the white noise, you'll pick up these voices. And I let, we got together one time and this was right after my daughter had a, a young boy named Connor. And so somebody had to babysit. So I sat out on the first session and uh, let my wife and daughter go in because they're really interested in this, this kind of thing as well and go on ghost hunts. And um, they told me that uh, Joan named some, some boy said Joan and then said Jesse and Jesse was a deceased brother. And so that was rather odd. So I said, okay, I'll, I'll go and attend uh, next time we have a gathering. And uh, so next time I'm sitting there in the basement of an old, supposedly slightly haunted church over in Fatville, Tennessee, and we're doing this. And I am thinking of John Keel. Well, at the very end of it, uh, at the very end of this, uh, Brett Oldham says, okay, Joan, uh, I heard, you know, Let's, let's go ahead and see if we can get your brother, Jesse. Uh, we're about to wind this up. And he even tells that on the, on the tape. And, you know, he says, uh, uh, Jesse, are you there? Can you say something to Joan? Now, I'm paraphrasing here. But anyway, instead of her brother coming through, it's heel, Johnny. <laughs> you know, and... Uh, and the thing is, I was there. I didn't hear that. It was only later that I found a stack of cassette tapes, and I was trying to figure out what's here. And this is like five months, six months later. And I put it in the recorder. Oh, that's a, a ghost box session. I realized, oh, that's the first one we did. And then I hear that, that one little sliver. And uh, I'm like, oh. So anyway, by that time, I'd heard John Keel a number of times coming through the ghost box. And suddenly I was... Uh, you know, uh, I had to get one in my own hands. Now, uh, my daughter's husband uh, likes technological challenges, so he went to uh, Radio Shack, and he modified one, and we had us a ghost box in no time and uh, found out that we could be sitting at the house, and uh, from time to time, we'd get John Keel. One time, got John Keel Brent. And then another voice says, Bert here. And Bert was a, a psychiatrist who studied parapsychology and UFOs, was a good friend of John Keel. And I had corresponded with him for uh, quite a number of years also, for several decades. And he had just died shortly after I started this ghost box thing. And so for a while, we were hearing Dr. Swartz, it sounded like, coming through. And we were hearing John Keel so much that uh, my wife one time, said, John, uh, I would like to talk to some, some of my people. Uh, could you quit trying to hog, you know? 
And then I didn't hear from John Keel too much after. I was afraid she ticked him off. But, you know, the, just the the idea, I mean, it was so clear. And I, I even shared some of the audio with uh, uh, Dan Drazen, who was mentioned several times in The Mothman Prophecy. Dan was a documentary film producer. He had just seen a UFO back in 67, and he was a little interested in the subject. And a friend of his said, John Keel, because they both lived in New York City, is doing a talk on UFOs. You just saw one. Why don't you go talk with him? So he went and talked with him. Ended up, they they hit it off. They became friends. He traveled to Point Pleasant, West Virginia, four times in 1967, uh, along with Keel, to Point Pleasant, West Virginia, and interviewed some of the, you know, talked with witnesses, saw phenomena himself. He was even- And this is, this is Mothman location, right? Just- this is Mothman location, yeah, yeah, and and uh, you know he he said the voice actually sounds kind of like John Keel to me, he says you know, uh, and he has he also by the way he has since produced a documentary on EVPs and such in a in a, a video called uh, Calling Earth, uh, so just you know anybody that's interested is quite a quite a good video, uh, and that's how I tracked him down was you know I was, I was watching one of his videos and uh, oh that. I've been on the radar for this guy for quite some time. Turned out this is the guy. So I interviewed him for the book as well. And uh, he had seen UFOs. He saw, he, was a, he saw one of the classic encounters described by Keel, where they're all seeing a UFO. Uh, I think they're standing at an airport around Point Pleasant, and it goes behind a cloud, and they're waiting for it to come out the other side. But instead of the UFO, it's a noisy airplane. <laughs> that comes out of the cloud. And uh, Keel mentioned it in, in the Mothman prophecies too, you know? And so anyway, uh, that's, but I've had some, some very interesting to me anyway, EVP responses. It seems intelligent, it's interactive, but it's like, it's, it never tells me anything that's, that's really revealing just that it, it knows it's interacting with me. And it's, it's teasing me like, and after four trickster, years, of, trickster stuff again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. After after about four years of just being like doing two sessions a week and then spending hours going through the audio, it's like, okay, I'm going to do this, uh, but not as uh, obsessively as I have because there are cases to investigate. You know, I got to quit. <laughs> and Keel himself even talked about such things, wrote about such things. He. Uh, he knew an instance where someone had been with a psychic medium and this voice came through and he said, it's exactly like this person he knew. But Keel said, nah, no, nah, it's, it's a, it's a trickster phenomenon. They can mimic our voices. So I can't say that this is John Keel. I'd like to say, you know, maybe, but Oh, one of the things that did sound like John Keel's voice was uh, one time knowing how Keel uh, told people exactly what he thought. He was straight. He shot straight. He, didn't mince words. And uh, there were people he really argued with in the field. So I said, we're going to play a, a game, John. Uh, I'm going to mention some names and you tell me what you think. So I deliberately selected some that I knew would be juicy. And uh, But what I didn't know was when I played the tape back at the beginning, I said, you want to hear what you'll say about him? This voice that to me sounded like John Keel because I talked with him on the phone some. And it said, and what I'd like to say about you, <laughs> you know, and uh, it wasn't really a, a class A recording, but I had my headphones on and I, I, I heard it. I heard it, you know, and uh, to me, it was 
that was a pretty clear enough that I could hear it and identify it and sounding like his voice and saying those words. And I just thought, wow. But uh, anyway. And hey, hey, Brent, final, final question. Can't resist. You know, from a spiritual perspective, you can get this from the Christian deep thinkers, as well as kind of uh, more into yogic and non-dual, but kind of not attached to anything. I just, but don't mess with this stuff. You don't, one, you don't need this stuff. It's just a distraction. It's, I'm not saying that. I'm saying, what do you think about that? What do you think about, you know, the stillness within is really all we need. And it, it, everything it, like that is a distraction is fundamentally going to remove you from the path. What you really got to do is, you know, go hug your daughter, go ahead to your grandkids, be nice to people, love everyone, tell the truth. And of course, we're fascinated with all that stuff. What do you think about that in general as a spiritual principle? Are we being distracted from what really matters? Yeah, I think sometimes, you know, that's the positive side of this that some people get, and they, the people that aren't distracted, but, you know, people like myself and, 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 and like you, I'm sure we, we like to analyze, you know, it deeper. There's some people that become like faith healers, uh, very spiritual, and they're always saying and doing really positive things. And, you know, I try, but I know I'm no saint. Uh, I was in the Navy, and I, I sometimes use, you know, cuss like a sailor, you know. But it's, it's, uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's. You'd like to give a, a clear message, say this is where you got to go, and this is what you got to do. You know, it's what gurus and and religious leaders, uh, shamans are supposed to educate their their tribe, their clan, their their people. But at the end, I remember Keel was being interviewed uh, in 2003 when he attended the Mothman festival in West Virginia. And someone asked him, I think that question, he says something like, I think sometimes, you know, uh, people are better off if they don't even get into this stuff. And I remember some Keel fans who were like, well, why do you say that? This is great stuff. I love it. <laughs> you know? But yeah, sometimes I think if, you know, maybe it was, it might be better just to try to embrace uh, a love for people and do things with integrity and honesty and and but it's I've just been so anchored into this this subject and looking for the meaning and the and the uh, connecting the dots. Uh, sometimes I I think I'd I'd almost like to depart from here and maybe work on science fiction something where I could have finally even though it's fictional you know I could present an answer you know. <laughs> Well, uh, yeah, I think, I think, as I said at the very beginning, it's hard for me not to believe that you're not doing exactly what you're supposed to do. I mean, 14 years old, that, you know, John, that just is too remarkable yeah, at, for me. At, well, at, at, at 14 and, and before that, I mean, I was into all kinds of things. And I was like, sometimes it felt like I was in a different thing each week, you know. But I was always kind of interested in, I mean, the year before UFOs, they'd been in the news a lot. I look out the sky hoping I might catch one. I was interested in astronomy. I was interested in dinosaurs. I was interested in 
all kinds of things. I even wanted to be, uh, I even liked the idea of maybe having a carnival, you know. <laughs> Just, <laughs> but for some reason, along came uh, that book by Frank Edwards, and I decided I'm going to become what I later found out was a ufologist, whatever that is. <laughs> but anyway, awesome. here I am all these years later, 70 years old, still hammering away at uh, as John Keel said, this can of worms. Well, it's been just awesome having you on, Brent, and I really appreciate it. Well, thank you uh, for having me on, and uh, and I've I've already thanked Bob Davis for uh, putting my name in the hat there with you. So appreciate it. Thanks again to Brent Rains for joining me today on Skeptico. I know it kind of bounced around a lot in this interview, so it might be hard to pin down a question. But if I did, I'd kind of go back to the shaman Native American thing and just ask what your thoughts are in terms of how we should deal with that body of knowledge about ET, about UFO. Because it comes in hot, it comes in strange, it doesn't fit. And then in some ways it does fit with a lot of the other narratives that are getting forced down our throat right now. So if you're into a kind of level three discussion on that, come join me on the Skeptico Forum or track me down and let me know your thoughts. As always, love to hear from you. Until next time, take care and bye for now. <music>